This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For those of us who grew up with it, coal is intrinsic. Is coal important to your family? I don't know. Is it to your family? Yes. That creates the kind of bond that you don't just make with any co-worker. No. But coal mining, you go underground, sacrifice your life, you sweat and bleed and work. How do you tell the story of an American industry, culture, and myth all at once? In the documentary King Cole, Oscar-nominated filmmaker and Appalachian native Elaine McMillian Sheldon examines a part of the United States deeply embedded in coal. And in this moment, as America increasingly turns away from coal as an energy source and towards renewables, the future of coal country remains uncertain. I'm Gigi Hawkins, and this week on the No Film School podcast, I speak with Elaine, director, co-editor, and producer of the film, as well as the film's cinematographer and co-producer, Curran Sheldon, after the film's premiere at Sundance 2023. The film takes us on an alluring cinematic journey through the past, present, and future of Appalachia. Elaine will catch us up on more details on that, what the film is about in our interview, but In watching the film, it felt like it was part memoir, part verite, and unlike anything I had ever seen before. It's so cinematic in scope that I was shocked to learn that they were mostly working with crews of two or three people, which I think goes to show why we should not shy away from great scope when it comes to our work as independent filmmakers. Since Sundance, King Cole has had an extensive festival run and is now screening at theaters across the country, starting in New York City. August 11th, 2023, and touring throughout. Details in the show notes. I can't recommend more the experience of seeing this film on the big screen. In our conversation, the day after the Sundance premiere, Elaine, Curran, and I speak about how the film came to be, how a smaller crew gives you an intimate access that the team worked hard to protect, We'll also talk about the tools they use to make this otherworldly feel that yields this boundary-pushing nonfiction storytelling. And finally, we'll unpack my favorite cut, 
slash transition of all film ever. It's been a couple months since I saw the film and I can't stop thinking about this moment. And finally, the breath work of artist Shodake. King Cole is this magical tapestry of place and people and a case study of the power of filmmaking outside of New York and LA. So now, my interview with Elaine and Curran. First of all, since a lot of our listeners may not have seen the film yet, can you both give an overview of what the film is about? Sure. So King Cole is part fable, part documentary about coal culture in Appalachia. So primarily the coal fields of West Virginia, Kentucky, Southwestern PA in that area. And it's a film that documents all the ways that the fossil fuel coal is part of belonging and identity and ritual in places like football games and pageants, but also takes moments to imagine a future where we have no king. And so it deals with the idea of the king not being alive, but not being dead, but being a ghost that haunts the culture. And so it's a personal documentary. I narrate it. So yeah, that's what it is. Nice. And and what was the inception of the idea for making this film? Did you set out knowing that you were going to make a feature documentary or were you just starting to like figure out what kind of story you wanted to tell? Yeah. Well, I've been telling stories from the region for a decade now, and they've all taken different formats. So I made an interactive documentary. I've made shorts. We we made shorts together, one other feature together. And I, I always sort of did see this as a feature. It didn't have these magical realism elements and these hybrid elements in the beginning. It just started out the way that Karen and I usually make work, which is observation. So we started filming coal-related rituals and coal science fairs, coal pageants, coal, all these weird things that we do in coal country that, you know, I, I'm a coal miner's daughter. I grew up in the area. I've left and returned and sort of reflected on what's going to happen next for the region, the place that we continue to live, and thought that it was a useful exercise to make a living archive of these things that are fading. And so that's how the film began. And then what was so interesting was like the tool that we usually use, which is verite, observational. It just fell short in terms of being able to describe the subtext of these coal-related scenes. And so then it came the elements of hybrid and play and imagination. It's interesting. I, I have a note here that uh, that it does feel very verite, but it also feels memoir-like because you're, you're narrating, you're speaking about your experience and your family's experience. What was the process of either finding and discovering the, the scenes and sequences? First, the, the non, I want to say magical realism yeah. elements, but setting the scenes that were, for example, these pageants where girls and women are going up at almost like, a, it is a beauty pageant, but it it's for coal. So how did you find those those moments? Yeah. Well, a lot of credit does go to my co-producer, Molly Bourne, who is an, on the ground and a journalist in the coal fields. And she and I just started sweeping Facebook and other places where these events were being posted. And I knew about some of them because I grew up there. And one of the earlier ones that Kern filmed was the 5K where they throw fake coal dust on you as you're running the race. So it was a matter of just like reaching out, reaching out to historical societies, just like finding out when we reach out to people, you know, there's obviously a little bit of hesitation because the coal industry has been portrayed in one singular way for, you know, for a specific reason. And so there was a little bit of hesitation, but we always made sure to tell people this is about culture and belonging. And this wasn't your, you know, hit job on anyone, you know, it wasn't a pro anything. And so we were able to get access to some really incredible cultural moments. And how, what is the preparation for that from a cinematographer 
perspective, Curran. Are you are you pre-visualizing shots or are you getting there and connecting together and saying, I think we should capture this? How long are you lingering on a specific moment? Yeah. Well, Lynn and I spoke about it a lot. I mean, we've we've done so much verite and observation that, you know, when we did a couple of films about the opioid crisis, it was very much a no do-overs. We don't tell anyone to do anything again or differently. We just always capture it, right? If we don't capture it, that's our fault as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And so that's always been sort of our MO. And I think what that allowed us to do is just be able to think on our feet very quickly, right? And, you know, Elaine started shooting this film with her co-producer, Molly. And so she actually shot quite a few of the, the Cole events on her own with, or with just Molly, you know, before she kind of realized what the film was going to be. And she had a great sort of vision for that, which was when we filmed these Cole events, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the culture itself where it's kind of locked down and it's stagnant. It's been that same way for 30 years, right? And so as I came on board and continued to film different Cole events, you know, we always kind of approach those observational moments in the same way. Like a lot of it's on tripod, on sticks. You let the the event take place in front of the camera and you're just a casual observer. And then when we decided, or when, especially when Elaine decided that she wanted a vision that was more on the magical realism side, you know, we started thinking like, okay, how do we make this feel differently, right? How do we make this feel almost like a dream, mm-hmm. almost like an imagined future? And so that became much more of, you know, different lens choices. You know, we used a kind of a very specific lens. I tested a bunch of vintage lenses as well as, you know, some different amorphic lenses to see what would be the best fit for those and settled on this tiny little Voigtlander Heliar Classic. They only make one type of this lens. It's a 50 millimeter. Uh, We use it on the C70. So it actually functioned more like a 75 millimeter, which is pretty tight. Mm -hmm. But it just has this amazing sort of auto uh, autofocus rendering and this background blur is just like this complete sort of magical that I've never seen in another lens before. And they made it specifically for that purpose. And so from a cinematography standpoint, you know, we just wanted to approach it, you know, to, to using the tools that we had to sort of create this otherworldly feel, right? And then as the film progresses, you realize that they're the same worlds. They're in the same place. They're just sort of disconnected from one another. So they kind of come together at the end in a little, in a surprising way that I won't give away. I want to dig a little more into the lens vetting process. Are you talking to to your friends, sussing out, like, this is the look that we want to go for? How how did you land on this? And was this your first time using this lens? Yeah, first time using this lens. You know, we live in Appalachia. So, like, there's, there's a couple rental houses where we live in Knoxville. But, you know, if you want to use anything, you're either renting it and having it sent to you or, you know, you're, you're buying it yourself. And so, you know, I... I, I've used like the contact Zeiss and the old like R series for a long time. I know those are very popular sort of vintage lenses and the context do, does give you sort of that, especially the 50 we've used it on a couple of projects. We shot a John prime music video with it and it just gave you this sort of really beautiful dreamy look, but it just didn't quite go as far as I wanted. And so it was really just, I, I have a friend in Knoxville who we just took out like six lenses one day, a couple old vintage lenses we found, you know, the Helios 442, which I know is all over no film schools. Mm-hmm. And then just tried to test it out a bunch of different ones. And that lens had just come out. I think it probably got released in 2019, 2020. Mm-hmm. And I just saw a couple of reviews on it. I was like, man, I've never seen anything that functioned in this way or looked this way. And so I just had to test it. So I just bought it and tested it. And I was like, if it's, you know, doesn't work, I'll return it. But it was perfect. So we just decided to go with that. And you did an actual test where we looked at them side we by did, side. Yeah. You know, he took out actually one of my students who had graduated at that point into the woods because specifically we were looking to film in natural places with natural light. This mm-hmm. is there's no artificial light in the entire film, really. And so it's so beautiful. We wanted to see how these lenses worked in natural settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we tested. We did like six or seven different shots with different of each lens. I think we had five or six different choices that we were thinking about. 
And so, yeah, especially with lenses, you know, when you're in forests, like the way the light comes through trees, right, is really is kind of where you see kind of what the bokeh looks like and what the autofocus rendering looks like. And so, yeah, we want, want to make sure that it wouldn't be overwhelmingly, you know, some lenses get a little too swirly, a little too crazy. And so we, we wanted to test it in all the different scenarios that we thought we'd find ourselves in. And yeah, landed on the Voigtlander. I really want them. So if they're listening, I really want like a 24 millimeter and an 85 millimeter and get me a whole set. Because, you hear that, Voigtlander? Yeah. <laughs> Now, I want to talk a little bit about how you crafted the narrative, Elaine. How did you find that this girl would be your way into the story? What was the process of figuring that out? Do you remember? Kind of. What's What's your recollection? I mean, my recollection is there's this coal world we're documenting. And I just remember being so struck by the kids in the coal world. Like they make, they're, they're the lead characters. They're the one touching the coal. They're the ones in the classroom. They're the ones doing the coal exhibit. And I just remember, like I'm making this film because I was a kid, right? In this coal world. And so I just remember feeling like kids were the best entry into this conversation that's often very political and very like, we've chosen our side. We know what this is. And like kids are, they create this opening for- right you know, just new ways of seeing things. Plus they say funny things mm-hmm. that you can't expect and do funny things in moments that oftentimes as adults, we might find saddered, you know, still. And do you remember, I mean, I know I know the decision when I made it, but I don't remember the conversation. Do you have any memory, Karen? I think a lot of it was around the fact that, you know, once once you started filming the different observational moments and you realize like this isn't going to fully tell the story that I want to tell, right? I want to talk about what is the future of this place because the king is dying, right? Because the coal industry is, has diminished so much in the past couple of decades that what really matters is, you know, the kids who are now 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, like what does their future look like, right? And so I think it was more of like, if we can get them to imagine something different and can imagine a different future for this place, then that is kind of what the change will happen through them. And so I think that was, and you were watching a lot of Alice in Wonderland films. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, this film was really, I literally lit, I like took all the things I knew about nonfiction, lit them on fire. Mm-hmm. So it's actually hard for me to like find the little path back to the crumbs, like because it, every, it was a three-year process of just like watching films like Pan's Labyrinth and like thinking about this dual world experience and, you know, asking my producer Shane Boris all the time, like, are we allowed to do this? Like, you know, like it was just, I just kind of like busted open all my ideas because this story really required a level of like not being able to see what was so painful and like mm-hmm. I had this visceralness that needed to be brought to screen. So it is hard to trace like when everything changed daily. Like I remember waking up and having an idea. There's so many bad ideas. I feel like that's like something. What was one of the bad ideas? Oh God. Like at one point there was goggles that the girls were going to wear and that's how they were going to travel into the future. Like there's just so many bad ideas, right? And I think that if anything, this process taught me that it's something Kat Sizzik said. She's a filmmaker from Canada. She's like, the director's job is to keep the bad away. And like, oftentimes the director is like responsible for bad too, mm-hmm. right? So like mm-hmm. all my bad ideas, we were able to see them as such and move past them and figure out the good ones. But I actually think they're really important. Like you have to come, sort of get the bad ideas out of the way in order to really figure out what it is you want. And so we shot a lot of bad things and they'll never see the light of day, thank goodness. But that was a really, I'd never been through that process because we're used to just following real life unfolding. Like whatever's in my head didn't matter with our other films. Mm -hmm. Like it was about what was in front of us. And this film really required a level of like failure and vulnerability that made me very insecure at moments, but ultimately made me grow a lot as a filmmaker. In those moments of vulnerability, how did you like push through? Cry. (laughs) 
I mean, just feel really hopeless and then get on the other side of it. I mean, ultimately, it's a story I knew I had to tell. And so I just had to like get on the other side of being scared to do it, figuring out how to do it, watching films. I mean, watching like really good films that break the mode, watching more fiction and actually reading poetry and looking at dance and how it's used on in film, like Maya Darren's film, At Land, when she has this like journey, she's traveling across these landscapes and she goes from the beach to the comp or the table, the like banquet hall table, like those moments of magic in cinema that were giving me hope, like what we're doing. And, you know, I think it, there's a tendency to be like, oh, this is new and different, but like everything we're doing has been done before. It's just a new way of like combining things to make it to make it new for me. And so, yeah, I, anytime I would just sort of get a little like, oh God, what am I doing? I would just look to other films to remind me or look to fables. I read a lot of fairy tales, mm-hmm. right? I read a lot of fables thinking about the construction. I mean, there's one point that Shane and I mapped out the whole film as a fairy tale structure, you know, mm-hmm. that didn't end up being it. But yeah. But so. that still feel, it's, there is still a some of that feel exists yeah. in the film still. So like having gone through totally. just mapping out a version that was that version, then there there's part of it that feels like part of the soul of the film. Totally. I think the film is like full of residuals mm-hmm. of the creative process. Like nothing at the end of the day, like everything kind of ended up fitting together. But at any point, it could have gone too far in any one of these directions. And we were able to like keep what was working with each of these and make something that was, I think, I hope harmonious, which is hard with a hybrid film, you know, when you're working with, you know, the two girls are cast at a local dance studio. So it's like a whole new experience of working with kids in that way. And we learned what didn't work and what did work. And, you know, we had some terrible scenes where we filmed poor little Lainey going up to adults and asking them questions, which was like a terrible version of the film, right? This is so unnecessary, but we we just had to try all these things mm-hmm. to figure out what the film was. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about the two girl characters and the the casting process and also how you, I talked about staging the scenes or setting up scenes that were sort of in out in the world, capturing these actual events. Talk to me about setting up the scenes between these two girls. Like, for example, there's a moment where you have them working on a project about coal. And and one of my favorite things that you shot was them putting all the heart in detail into their poster for the school project. And I'm like, I know I did that too. And I'd get way more into the presentation of the facts than the meaning of the project. And I thought that was so beautiful and specific and true to girlhood. Yeah. We were just trying to think of moments that friends have, right? So there's friendship moments. There's doing homework together. There's like going to public events together, going to the fair together, right? And those are all, they're not scripted, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, here's the situation. Here's the school supplies. Here's a homework assignment that's a legitimate assignment given to kids Mm -hmm. for the coal science fair. But yeah, I think we just kind of, we, we would sort of explain to them like, you know, the firefly scene, like this is a scene to just play. And like the Cole Memorial scene, this is a scene to actually listen to what's being said, right? But it was, we never really prepped them all that much because we didn't want them to feel like they were acting. Uh, And they just came up with some of the best lines. Like these, you know, there's a moment where in the homework assignment scene, she, Lainey says, is Cole important to your family? And she asks Gabby and Gabby's like, I don't, I have no clue. Like, she's genuinely answering the question. She's like, I don't know. And she asked Lanny, she's like, is it to yours? And she's like, yes. Like just immediately, like the flattest yes. And like, it was such a great moment because like they're both, they both have coal history in their family. But generally like, I worked with Celia Ralston Hall, who's a choreographer who actually made that dance for Lanny, who's like merging these two worlds with her hands. And 
she came and worked with Lainey. But other than that, we really just let them be kids in these in these spaces. And of course, we were like, with Lainey, she's a very active girl. Like, she's very athletic. So that was one of the rain, main reasons we wanted to cast her. And I was, should give credit to Molly Bourne, too, my co-producer, who is the one who went around dance studios during COVID with a bunch of little girls with masks on, trying to figure out, like, who who was it that might be able to be comfortable on camera. And then ultimately, we had a, a short list of girls that applied and wrote sort of why they thought they might be good for this. And that's when we learned about cult, their cult history and all that, which was important for us to have kids that actually understood the the sea we were swimming in here. But yeah, what would you say about that, about prepping them? A lot of times I would send Curran out with just them because we we are a filmmaking crew that we we are not a big crew. We are like two or three people and we are dedicated to making films like that because that's how we get intimate access, these types of things that we really value. And so oftentimes I just send Curran out with Lainey and Gabby to get these moments because they were good at ignoring you. And also you and Lainey. <laughs> I'm easily ignorable. No, but, but, but <laughs> it's it's but you know if there's someone standing off to the camera that they feel like there's being is watching them, they're not being kids anymore. They're they're doing something right. But I remember like I some, Karen taught me a really important lesson when we were first meeting Lainey because she was shy and I'm like so serious and intense sometimes. Mm-hmm. But like we just sat down to dinner with her and Karen started playing tic tac toe with her and I was just like that's such a like I would have never thought that and Karen has a level of playfulness to his work and the way he interacts with people and. I think that he really brought that with working with Lainey. Like you guys would race after we'd have a run and stuff. And, you know, I think… I always had a Frisbee on hand. Yeah. Uh, always raised things to throw around. Her little brother always came along too. So it was just… I think it's just, just about, especially, you know, at that age, it's like just making them comfortable, right? The camera, you can kind of hide behind, you know, and there there were moments where it was almost like imperative that Elaine or, you know, Molly, who would come on shoots with us a lot, our co-producer, to just, you know, leave the room basically, right? Because, you know, if you're not a trained actress or a trained actor, you're kind of look, you're looking right at the other people in the room. And so you don't want their eyes sort of going to a person that's like watching them intently. Whereas a camera, they can ignore to some degree. And I mean, there were a few moments where we just like, okay, maybe we can prep them and have them ask these questions or talk about this. And it was never as good as just letting them be kids. And so all sort of the, the playfulness and joy that comes throughout the film and sort of their relationship was just them being them. And so there, I think more than anything, it's just, they're just a great vehicle through the worlds, right? Like it's, it's something to attach to for the viewer that they can watch, you know, these two young girls go on this journey and kind of, you know, Lainey has a little bit of that Alice in Wonderland where she's kind of being transported to different places and not really sure why. And, and then just letting them be them, right? You know, putting them in the scenes and then letting the scenes play out as you would any other documentary scene. So I don't know, it's just, it was such a beautiful idea, I think by Elaine that it just works. It works so well. Now this is getting into the brass tacks of filming and production, but can you talk to me about sound and how you were able to capture it all when you were such a small team? Well, our field recordist, Billy Wierasnik, joined once we actually got funding for this film. Drexler Films came on and, and financed the film, and then we were able to actually team up. And so, live mics on everyone and belts. You know, mm-hmm. we use those elastic belts like it's our job, and we put them on someone at the beginning of the day, and we don't take them off. And we have, what's Sennheiser? Or what ones do we use? Sennheiser? The ones that last like oh, 16 the, hours. The, the ABX. Yeah. yeah. The ABX series, yeah. So well, those, Billy has nicer ones. He's I know. Like, Billy uses nicer yeah, ones. Like, but when, before Billy came on, we used those because the batteries last 16 hours, right? And that's what we needed for these long shoot days and playful days where like Lainey was literally flipping and running, right? So we needed something that could stay on her body. So lavalier mics and then me with a boom pole or Molly with a boom pole. And then obviously a shotgun mic on top of the camera. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a proximity thing, like how 
close can you get with your audio? That's always the question. It's like, how can you stay out of the frame but still be super close? And we love sound. We prioritize sound. We see it as like something that can't be sacrificed for visuals. And so when Billy came on, I mean, Billy's a champion of sound. I mean, he he built this special contraption that would record ambisonic sounds from the forest. So it actually like heard like the human ear heard. Um, oh, and yeah. he would just like go sit it in the forest overnight. And like, all, I mean, we, the sounds that our sound designers had to work with were incredible because Billy, I mean, he just puts in so much more work than most field recorders. Like he doesn't just show up for the shoot. Like he's thinking creatively too. And then we got into the sound mix and it's like, you have all this library that Billy, because Billy's been working with us for 10 years in West Virginia and Appalachia. So he has a whole library of Appalachian sounds of birds and all these seasons and stuff. So he's created this beautiful library that we were able to pass to the sound designers. Mm -hmm. And our sound designers were, you know, uh, supervisor was Alex Furman, who did everything everywhere all at once. Mm -hmm. And just an incredible team at Signature Post. So sound was prioritized to make this a experience that was visceral and not just, you know, beautiful because, you know, Kern's images are beautiful, but we want contrast sometimes. I'd love to hear about a specific shot that you married sound with that is like your favorite match. I was really excited when this happened because we were supposed to film Lainey somewhere else and it was a super hot day and we had to cancel that shoot. And I was just like, let's just film her in the town. Like this is the town closest to where Curran grew up. I was like, let's just film her walking around the town like a kid just buying ice cream, doing what you do, just wandering around town which is kind of what I did growing up in Logan, West Virginia. And so we called the local grocery store and was like, hey, can we film in there? We're just going to like, you know, this kid's going to come buy ice cream. We're going to walk around the street. They're like, sure. So it's like 10 minutes before we film, we show up. This is why we love filming in Appalachia, by the way. There's like no location permits you need. Like you just call and ask a favor. And anyway, so we get this ice cream. She checks out. She goes outside. She buys a harmonica at the store, right? And she's just like blowing this harmonica. It's a super pathetic, like plastic harmonica that doesn't make any sound. And then, so we filmed this scene and it's not really a scene. Like, you know, you're just filming, just not really knowing what you're doing. And then like two days later, we go to Charleston, West Virginia and Billy and Curran go and film this coal barge. And I'm pulling selects because we both edit and I co-edited this with Eva Radovojevich, but I would always pull selects after our shoots because it just helps me stay on top of things. And I was just pulling them by day and those days just happened to be back to each other. And I made this cut where she blew into the harmonica and it turned into the barge horn. And then we cut to the barge. And I was just so happy with it because it was like, it's just a cut. Like there's nothing like brilliant about it necessarily, but it it was one of those like hints of magical realism that I wanted to play with that I was so happy actually happened in the natural world that we didn't set up and just occurred. So that's probably one of my favorite sound cuts. Was it the barge shot that where the barge went across the whole frame? So I actually was thinking of that I was like, I wonder if this is the shot that that you would bring up. Yeah. And that moment that le- led into it clearly made it a very memorable shot and yeah. moment for me as a viewer. So. Yeah, yeah. she blows her harmonica and it transitions to the barge horn, which is like very, I love that. I love that scene too, because this is more of a cinematography answer, but Billy and I, we just got the schedule for the barge. We're like, okay, it's going to, should be coming by at like 12 o'clock. And so we go down there and I'm on, I had two cameras going because I wanted one tighter. So I was on a 7200 and the 18 to 35. And so the barge goes by and I, I bought a, this lens, this RF lens. Canon has a fairly cheap 600 millimeter F11 lens. And I was like, that'd probably look pretty cool actually if I had that. And so we just like got in the car and drove a mile down the river, got back out 
and put that on there. So it functions like a 900 millimeter on this C70. And that's when you see just like the whole thing is just taken up by coal. Impossible to focus. I'm not even sure if it is in focus, but the the coal barge going by and just like piles of coal and it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's just mountains of coal. It's just, it was such a cool experience and such a cool, yeah, sort of happy accident. But sort of favorite sound and visuals. I mean, the, uh, the coal mine scene into the forest fog scene was, I think, just it's it's the most visceral in the film where you're hearing the continuous miner of the machine, you know, just digging at the coal. And then it's just it's almost sounds like kind of a monster, you know, and, and Elaine and the sound team heightened that so much in post. So it sort of felt like that. And so when you cut to sort of this, you know, beautiful forest with fog, it's just sort of a stark contrast that it's, you know, it's such a great use of sound. And I should say that I found that cut. I, I teach students and I was trying to teach them about like match cuts and dra- graphic cuts and editing and stuff. And I was trying to find an example. And there's that Revenant scene or that Revenant moment where the Leo, what's his name? DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> That guy, he's like, have you heard of him? I love the movie, but I don't know what it's like. It's <laughs> terrible. As he's like laying on the ground, he's breathing into the lens and it fogs and then they cut to the fog, Ooh. the mountain fog. And I just love that transition. And that's exactly where I like did this. It was like the inside the mine with this dust turning up, all this fog. And it was like, and I should give massive credit sound wise to Shodake, who is our breath artist, who is the one that's literally making all the crazy sounds you hear in this film from thunder and crickets and overtoned breath and all these like, I didn't even know it could come out of a human body. So most people might see this film and hear those and think those are sound effects, but that is a person making these sounds with their breath. I've never heard of a breath artist. I know. So all those sounds are, yeah. wow. Yeah. so cool. Yeah. And I'm happy to like, provide some like just like snippets of him doing it separately yeah, and you could like them put in. them in yeah that'd be great yeah ocean waves uh this is wind I love that. So I want to talk more about the the process of participating in labs and and you were part of the Gotham Project Market. What support did this film receive along the way and how did you what goals did you go into these different programs? Yeah. Well, we raised like $250,000 from grants and all that. So a lot of support was given early on from these types of labs and nonprofits that support films early. So How long did that take? Oh, we started writing grants and filming in 2019. So, it, I mean, with COVID and also we had a baby, <laughs> it wasn't, I, we actually finished the film quicker than I would expect. But 2019, we started, our first grant was the West Virginia Humanities Council. It's 20 grand. Then we got the Sundance Institute Development Fund. I think that was 10 or 15. Tribeca Gucci was 10 or 15. I got a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship Award, which was a, a big grant and a creative capital. And then the Gotham Labs, which at that time was called IFP, was just amazing because actually I've seen a lot of people here that I pitched to there and who are really excited to see the film now. And it's just one of those ways that it's very necessary for us that we don't live in New York and LA to have those labs. Even as, you know, yes, we've been nominated for an Oscar and yes, we've had these awards. We still, it's hard to stay on people's radar. You know, we're not often in the consciousness of people at these parties and stuff. So we, it's really important for us to be have the, have those opportunities remotely. And... What else? I would say Catapult gave us a development field of vision, came in. I mean, kudos to people like Charlotte Cook, who actually, you know, 
listen to your idea, believe in it when it's half baked mm-hmm. and and actually like just allow you to make the film. I remember she emailed us just like, I don't know, four months ago. It's like, just checking in. I hope all's well. No pressure. You don't have to write me back. I was like, we finished the film. She's like, you what? Like, <laughs> so like, she's used to like things like, you know. Taking time. Yeah. And and they gave us time and I'm really appreciative. And so, yeah, we we had a lot of really incredible support. You bring up an interesting point about the project, the Gotham Project Market in particular. And I'm familiar with it because I ran their audio project market in 2021. And I found that some folks would come into the program and they would think, this is it. And this is going to be what like makes my career and finishes my project. But really, it is like a, a great networking tool. And I tried to like sort of shift the focus for a lot of the creators who now a lot of their podcasts are coming out this year, which is very exciting to see. But this is a first conversation, a first date, somebody that you start to establish rapport with, and then you'll run into them at festivals. You'll they might it might be a partnership that ends up happening nine years down the line. And I think that's really important context to hear. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I think having a long view of your career is so healthy. Otherwise, you're going to get burnout and depressed because there's never one thing that's going to change your career. Even if you feel like, oh, if I just got this Sunday, it's great. It would change everything. You're going to go to the other side of that and need more money, right? So there's always like this perception that there's one thing that's going to unlock the key to everything, but it still requires your hard work. It still requires this long-term vision. And I would say like, we worked with Jason Spingarnkoff when he was at the New York Times making like op docs for a thousand bucks a pop, right? Like no money. And then he went to Netflix and then he ended up being the EP of two of our films and like was a direct line into that very like, you know, accelerated way to get our films out there. So it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all about, and not phony relationships, like right. actually like, you know, checking in with people and like being interested in what they're doing and not just pitching your stuff to them all the time. One of the things, I actually started following your newsletter, I guess maybe two years ago, and I have no idea how I discovered it or how I subscribed. And then I was like putting two and two together and somebody had passed along and I had seen, I knew that the film was coming to the festival. And I thought, and I was like, oh, the name's so familiar. Oh my gosh, duh. Like she's been sending me updates like every nine months or something. So talk a little bit about the newsletter and how that is part of the community building and maintaining relationships that you've yeah. created. I Every time someone tell, tells me they subscribe to my newsletter, I get a little anxiety because I'm like, God, I don't remember the last time I sent one because they're not regular. Like a lot, I get a lot of newsletters from people that are monthly and whatever. And I find I just delete them. It's yeah. just too many, right? It's special and, when it comes in yeah. like a, every, like yeah. once or twice a year. Yeah. So what, I mean, my process for the newsletter, well, the reason was I got rid of all social media. I just like in 2017, Karen and I were like, it's not helping our creative process. I'm not getting jobs from it. Yes, it seems ironic. We're in a visual field. We should be investing in this. But I just felt really drained by it. The like evil of comparison of like, I'm not doing enough. This person's doing this. And it just wasn't helpful for me. So I just got rid of it. But I needed a way to still communicate with people like what's going on, what I care about, all these things. So basically, I just created notes in my phone and when that thing has 10 things, I'll send the newsletter, but I won't send it until I at least have 10 things. And they can't just be a bunch of like ego things about me. They have to be like things I've read or seen or like, you know, it has to be so, I don't want my newsletter to just be like a spam about me. It's to be somewhat helpful for people. Like I've even shared like my biscuit recipe. So it's like pretty random, but I don't know. I just hope that they're personal and, you know, social media is great. I, there's no reason why we shouldn't use it. But for me, it's like not really the realest way to connect with people. Yeah. You're like putting a certain face forward that's not always the person you get to meet in person. And I hope my newsletter is a little bit more me than like 
you know, an Instagram account of like a successful Elaine would be. Like yeah. in the newsletter, you just gotta get the normal Elaine that's a little weird, right? Whereas the Instagram, you might just get the successful Elaine. I find that kind of annoying. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel so much pressure to have an Instagram as an emerging filmmaker. And and, and I feel the exact same way. Like it, this isn't contributing to the work. It creates FOMO. It's like, well, I'm not doing enough. And this person just did that thing. So I think this is very helpful. I'm, I yeah. might borrow your idea. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to not feel that way. I think we both still wonder if it was the right move, especially when you have a film premiering at Sundance and you're like, well, I don't have anybody to, to send this out to you. But well, what has the promotion process been for the film? Just doing no film school podcasts. Basically. <laughs> yes. yeah. We have great publicists at Acme. So we are lucky. We have Nancy Willen, McGuire, and Emily here. So we, they've been great to work. They have been, yeah. I mean, we have professionals. We are lucky in that way. And that comes from, I mean, just a hot tip producers, right? Mm. Like Kern and I made our own work for a long, long time without producers. And producers do a lot of things. They help you creatively, they help you financially, they do a lot of things, but they also have experience. Experience. Can you say more about that? I mean, Kern and I are used to kind of doing everything ourselves and working as a two-person team. And what was really special about this film is being able to work with producers who help you see the vision through hiring other crew and connecting you with resources and just generally being more connected than I think Kern and I are when we live in Knoxville and kind of just do our two-person crew thing. And so those those producers, Diane Becker, Peggy Drexler, and Shane Boris, all really helped connect me in this film in some way to the larger ecosystem that's made it possible. And particularly Drexler Films and Peggy Drexler and Kathleen Dre- Catherine Drexler giving notes in the process, but also just supporting the creative vision to actually let us make the film we wanted to make, which is something that's a rare opportunity to have funding, to be able to do that. So yeah, having good producers and knowing what you have to offer to them and knowing what they have to offer to you. And every producer sort of has a different role. Very thankful for those three. And when you were in that vetting phase, how did you, so you said you had multiple calls because it feels like in a way you're, it's a marriage with your producers and it, I think emerging filmmakers are very quick to be like, yes, anything to make the film, but to take the time and have the patience. Was it just that with your experience making films before you, you trusted that it would work out if, if it was the right fit? I think it's good not to be desperate. Mm -hmm. Like don't think you don't have something really valuable to offer. The producer should gain your trust Mm -hmm. and you should make them talk about the work. And if you like how they're talking about the work, that's a good way to know if they're a good fit. But no producer should just, you know, win you over based on their previous roster. They're a team member, just like anyone else. And you wouldn't hire a DP if you, if they didn't see the same vision. So I think, you know, having conversations that make sure you're aligned. And Kern's a co-producer on the film too. So like, you know, I, my relationship with him as a director of photography, he's contributing in a lot of creative ideas as well. So producers of all shapes and sizes, I think it's just important to respect like everyone's bringing something different to the table. Yeah. You bring the connection with the kids, the tic-tac-toe. Knowing where to be at the right time, location scouting. I mean, we do everything. And so, yeah, it's even writing. I mean, Curran would give me a lot of feedback on narration, writing, and all kinds of things. I would just add on producers especially is make sure you know what it is you need. 
mm-hmm. right? I think for Elaine and I, like we we are self sufficient in a lot of ways, right? Like we can shoot, we can edit, we can do sound, we can make the film. But I think we lack in other other ways, right? We're not really in the industry, right? We live in Tennessee, and so you know, and I think for Elaine, when she brought on Shane, she's like. You know, Shane has this just very imaginative mind, right? He's he's just a person who can think big picture and see a lot of, I mean, his his film knowledge is just general knowledge of literature and art is so expansive that when Elaine's like, I have this idea, he's like, oh, here are like five references, right? And so when, you know, on her writing, like he just had so many good like lines and turns of phrases and like, if you can say it like this, and that was unbelievably helpful. Whereas Diane Becker is just like, she just gets stuff done. You know, like people know her. She's like, I'm going to get everything done. I'm going to be organized and I'm going to hammer it out. And they both can obviously play those roles, but like knowing that like, okay, you know, you can kind of use Shane for this and Diane for this. And, you know, obviously they can kind of cross pollinate that, you know, it's, it's helpful. So just kind of knowing exactly what it is, where are your shortcomings? Like I'm not, a, when I direct, I'm just not a very organized director, right? I, I need someone to be like, okay, here's the schedule. Here's what we're going to do. So just I'm right kind of knowing there with where, you. Yeah, knowing where your shortcomings are is helpful. Yeah. yeah, and I will say Diane came up with some really great creative ideas too. So even as much as I put her on those spreadsheets and budgets and stuff, she is also like has a lot to contribute creatively. Creatively. Now you premiered the film yesterday. How was it getting it in front of an audience? Oh my god, it was so overwhelming. I was sweating. So sweaty. It's so sweaty. I had to take my shirt off and wear my tank top during the whole screening. I was just like, I can't. I'm not a sweaty person. I was so nervous. They're gonna see put a tank top on. I know. Yeah. Goodness, watch that's the actually screening a great in my tip bra. For the yeah, yeah. All of your premieres wear a tank top underneath <laughs> yeah, whatever else layers, you're wearing. <laughs> wear something or black. Exactly. Tip. Yes. It was amazing. It was really, really amazing. We got we got to screen at the Egyptian, which is this old, beautiful theater. When I introduced the film, I just looked out to all these people. And it really was a career highlight and a really special moment because this film was so scary to make. And I didn't know if anybody was going to get it. And even in introducing it, I didn't know if anyone was going to care or get it because no one had really seen it. We've been making this in a bubble for three, four years. So it was amazing. People, like we said, people laughed at the moments when like the minor talks about methane, like burning all your skin off in front of kids, right? Like they're they're telling these like intense stories to children who are like, oh my gosh. And when the girls have all their dreams about being FBI agents and New York City ballet dancers. And uh, I like the the game plan of one of the girls. She's like, well, I'll be a dancer until my body gives out and then I'll have my law degree to fall back on. And I was like, yeah. I That's know. exactly how Isn't it, it should, amazing. She's got a map. Which out. is like such a great example of why kids need to be at the center of this. Like as mm-hmm. adults, we like don't believe in ourselves anymore, right? <laughs> we get like stuck in our ways, but like kids are just like, I can do anything. And it's like it's such a great representation for the region, right? Like yeah. speaking for the for imagination. But it was beautiful. I mean, our our I think the response was good. It was amazing to see a full house and it was just kind of a dream come true to like actually see a film that took a lot of creative risks pay off. I mean, to premiere at Sundance is unreal. This is a, it's like an amazing place because most of the people here have never been to Appalachia that are watching these films. And so we get to take them there through this film and show them this place we love. And hopefully they leave the theater thinking a little bit differently about yeah. this place. I, I, that was my experience. And I watched a screener beforehand, but I did feel, I felt transported and I saw things that I had never seen before, like the mountains of coal on the barge. And, and, and I think there's like a real beauty to the place that is just not considered in our culture. I don't know if you've read the book, The Third Rainbow Girl, 
I loved it. And it, it sort of like opened my mind. I still have never been, but I'm like, this is now a place that is on my radar and I'm curious about. And, and I think that sparking that curiosity is really important, especially because most of this industry lives in a bubble on a coast. So now what advice do you have for emerging filmmakers, folks who may be setting out to either make their first doc short or, or something more ambitious? Good question. I mean, I think, and I think we both kind of did this by accident or by necessity of being able to do sort of all the roles if necessary, right? It's like, I would even say I'm like, I, I get hired as a DP, but you know, it's not the only thing that I do, right? And like, if I have to do sound, I can, I can pull it off. I'm not the best sound recorder, but I can pull it off. I'm not the best editor, but I can pull it off. And, and having that knowledge of just being, you know, at least familiar with all the different roles, at least, you know, the main technical roles and, you know, it'd probably be sort of the, you know, because then you can just do, you can do stuff on your own. I mean, the amount of films we made, short films, short docs on our own with no money, just because we had fun was, you know, such a learning experience, but it just gave us sort of that, that foundation. You know, I've, I did a travel documentary series where I made probably a hundred short docs in three years. And I didn't even know what I was doing, but I was teaching myself how to make films and I was putting myself through film school. So that's the one in terms of like from a- His own film school. My own film school. Film school. school. I was going through my no film school process. Yes. And then, so I think from a technical standpoint, you know, just having that knowledge is is really important. And Elaine may say something similar, but the second is to figure out what you're passionate about and tell stories about that, Right. I think in the No Film School article, I talked about, you know, there's so much emphasis on people wanting to make pretty images, right? But pretty images without a vision, pretty images without a point, pretty images without, you know, something that you are really care or passionate about, you know, is just, you know, it's, it's fun for 20, 30 seconds, right? But to sustain a short film or a short doc, you have to have sort of that vision and a story. That's something that Elaine is, is so amazing at, right? She's built an entire career and has this body of work because she cares so deeply about this place and this community and this culture. And so, you know, it's, you can build a entire body of work and reputation, you know, on something that you are sort of singularly focused on and then sort of twist that on its head as we, as I think that we did with King Cole. Yeah. A couple of things to piggyback on that is I've never understood directors that don't shoot, don't know how, how to shoot or how to edit mm-hmm. or any, because like, I don't understand how you direct someone unless you've had the experience of struggling in those roles and like. I, I, there's plenty of them that do, but I just can't. Like the way I direct and edit sometimes is to edit, right? It's like, oh, this is what I'm feeling. Like, does this make sense? You know, and maybe it's just, I'm not good with words. Maybe I just have to show things, but I just find it so valuable if you want to be a director in any role, in any leadership role that you have experience of failing yeah. in those things, then you're you're a much more compassionate leader and you're kinder and you understand the the limits of the thing. Also like, you know, we're all from somewhere. Right. And that place always has stories. And I, I just think it's incredible, like how many seemingly small yet universal stories are in our own backyard. And I see a lot of filmmakers go in debt, into debt to tell stories that are really out of reach, whether it's geographically or financially. And I just have always kept a small footprint and have done the stories that I have the best access to. Because that's really what it comes down to is like, how much time can you spend on the ground with people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a documentary, at least. Yeah. And I also tell my students all the time, like, just get out of your own, like, issues. Like, be curious about other people. Keep yourself open to the strange things around you or the way, look at the way light hits at a certain time of day or just just sort of start logging the things that are inspiring to you. And eventually you'll look at that pile of things that you've logged over the 
past six months, if you'd make that a six month exercise and you'd be like, oh, there's a theme here, right? And we, and it's, it's good to like tap into the brain to know what the themes are that really excite you. So yeah, just make stuff too. Like yeah. don't wait for anybody to give you permission. My first camera was a refurbished mini DV camera I bought off of B&H and it was like, I don't know, 200 bucks. And I made all my first films on that camera. And my first film was about bikers. Like I just like went out into a biker bar. I just, just like, just make the, make the stuff yeah. and make the bad stuff that you don't want anyone to see. Just make it and get it out of your system and learn how to do it. And then eventually in 10 years, you're going to make something that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's, you can't get to that until you have enough experience making all the stuff you got to get out. Well, I love that. And thank you both for being here. Where can people follow your work? We touched on the newsletter. (laughs) newsletter. (laughs) We do have an Instagram. It's King Cole Film, at Mm -hmm. King Cole Film. I am on Twitter, Elaine M. Sheldon, I think. But other than that, yeah, sign up for my newsletter. That's the way to follow what I'm doing. Curran, what do you have? You have an Instagram. Uh, I have an Instagram. If you want to see a post every two years, follow me at just Curran Sheldon, my name. I've posted more, I think, in the last week than I have in the last Uh two years combined. And then probably just my website, CurranSheldon.com. It's probably the best. I don't have a newsletter or Twitter really. So, Well, thank you so much, Curran and Elaine for being here. And thank you to our listeners. If you want to follow more of our podcast, you can rate and subscribe out across all podcast platforms. You can find us on the web at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and send questions to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thank you for listening. 